We say, there's, there's a phrase that we say around here at Central, and you've probably seen it a million times, better together. We believe that we are better together rather than separate as individuals. We believe that God has created us as a people that need one another, not as individuals who can just kind of be isolated. And one of the things that we've done here at Central uh, to, to meet that need to be together is, is our groups hour, 945. We have, we have groups for uh, almost every demographic that you could imagine. Uh, some demographics ha- have, a, have a couple of groups. As a matter of fact, uh, this next week, we're starting two new groups. Uh, one is, is a multi-generational group. Another one is, is for parents, but, but the subject is the scriptures. And so, uh, you know, we're better together, not alone, and we want you to be a part of a group. And so if you're looking for information about the new groups or the uh, groups that are already established, you know you need to be in one. All of that information is out at the welcome table as you walked in those front doors over there. And so after the service, stop by, check it out. There's also information online. We believe that we're better together, and we know that uh, there are just some things that are better together. We, we could list them out, you know? We've, you've got peanut butter, you got jelly. They're both great on their own, but together, they're better, you know? Uh, you, we've got chocolate syrup. We got vanilla ice cream, great on their own. You put them together, they're better. Uh, growing up, my, my dad was a, was a high school basketball coach, and so my Tuesdays and Fridays for my whole life was going to basketball games. We, you, know, you can imagine what that would be like as a kid to you know, get out of school on a Tuesday or Friday, and you're going to end up at some gym somewhere and, and watch, watch some basketball. And so we ate many a dinner uh, out of the concession stand. Uh, and snacks and whatever, I guess, my mom would get us just to keep us settled for the game. Uh, my mom, I remember, she would do this, and, and probably even longer than just the basketball games, even when she was a kid, uh, her, like, go-to snack was she would go get a pickle from the concession stand, and then she would also get a box of uh, sweet tarts and uh, cut the top off the pickle and then stick the sweet tarts down in the pickle and eat it. <laughs> There are some things that are better together, and that's not one of them. <laughs> some things are better together, and that's also true about the attributes of God. You know, individually they're great, but somehow they're more glorious when you kind of put them together. And we're going to look at Psalm 8 this morning. Psalm 8, you can turn in your Bibles there. And we're going to see two attributes of God, two things that are true about him. They they don't seem like they go together, but when they do, you see how glorious it is. And one thing I want to point out to you about Psalm 8 is context. And so uh, we've been in the Psalms since the beginning of July, and this is the last last sermon in the series, Summer of Psalms. Uh, Next week, we're starting a brand new series. Uh, Pastor Mark's going to be preaching on the Holy Spirit is where we'll begin there. And so uh, look forward to that. But we've been in the Psalms, and one of the things that that we kind of have to think about when we think about the Psalms is it's 150 chapters, but the chapters are are songs, individual songs. And so throughout time, people have written these songs. King David wrote most of them, but other people wrote, wrote songs. And then at some point, somebody or somebody's 
gathered them all together into one book, the book of the Psalms, 150 of them. But when they did that, they didn't just grab like random and just throw them in and the order doesn't matter. There's actually an order and there's care that's taken to arrange these Psalms together. So much so that you can read them together. So when you're, when you're reading a, a, a Psalm like we're going to do today, it is okay, it's actually preferable for you to read the Psalms around it for some context. There's a message that's being proclaimed through these Psalms. And so for our Psalm 8, the, the, consider the context. You know, Psalm 1, we looked at last week, the blessed man is the one who delights in God's law. Psalm 2, the blessed man is the man who delights in God's son. And then Psalms 3 through 7 are David's psalms. And David considers himself kind of like a son of God as he's the king over Israel. And he writes Psalms 3 through 7 in the context of his son Absalom. David's son Absalom tried to usurp the throne from him, and he threatened his father David. He, he threatened to kill him. He maligned him. And, and David writes these psalms crying out to the Lord, this isn't right. Help me, Lord. And the end of Psalm 7, David says, I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. So suffering in Psalms 3 through 7, but a promise that I will praise, and then Psalm 8 is that praise. David's heart soars with praise for the majestic God who also draws near to lowly man. Well, let's look at Psalm 8 together. Uh, if you're looking at your own copy of the scriptures, there's something at the top that looks like you should ignore. It's called a superscription. Um, that's actually part of the Bible. Uh, the little superscription, the bold heading, mine says, how majestic is your name? That's something the editors put in. But, but the superscription there, it says, to the choir master, according to the giddeth. Uh, a giddeth, I'll be honest with you, scholars really have no idea. They, they have some guesses, like maybe it's a, a tune or a melody, or maybe it's an instrument, and maybe it's related to the town of Gath, where Goliath is from. That sounds like a really smart guess, but they're just guessing. They really don't know. Uh, a Psalm of David, and David writes this beginning in verse one. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beast of the field, the birds of the, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Well, this morning we're going to focus just on verses one through four. And what we're going to see there is that worship erupts from a heart that meditates on the majesty of God 
combined with the nearness of God. Let's begin verses one through three. We'll consider the majesty of God. So if you wanted to write a heading there, verses one through three, we have the majesty of God. The psalm begins with this statement, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. King David writes that. What we have here is glory from the mouth of the king. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. That sounds kind of clunky to me while we're saying that Lord twice. I want to show you that, that it's not really clunky. It's just clunky in your English translation. That word Lord, probably in your copy of the scriptures, that first one is in all caps. And what that's indicating to you is that the word there, the Hebrew word represented there, is, is not the one for Lord. That would be Adonai. Uh, what they're indicating to you with those all caps is they're showing you it's actually God's name that's there. God's name is Yahweh. He, he gave himself that name when he met Moses uh, on the mountain there from the midst of the burning bush. Moses said, I'm about to go to the people of Israel, and I, I'm, I'm going to say, come, come follow me out into the wilderness. And they're going to say, wait a minute, what's, your, what, what's God's name? How, how, what am I supposed to tell them? And God said, you know what? Tell them my name is Yahweh. That means I am. I have always been. I am currently right now. I will forever be. I am the ultimate reality. I exist. I need no one. I need nothing. I exist. That's what God's name means. And so there it begins. It's not as clunky as it seems. Oh, Yahweh, our Lord. Now, what does the word Lord mean? We don't use that word very often. I, the only time we really use it is as like a substitute name for God, which, which is fine. But, but that word Lord means master, boss, owner, possessor. And so in the very first line of Psalm 8, David is, is making a claim. Yahweh is our Lord. He is our boss. He is our master. We live to serve him. He doesn't live to serve us. Oh, Lord, our Lord. And, and then the next statement, how majestic is your name in all the earth? That's not a question. That, that is an exclamation. How majestic is your name in all the earth? That word majesty, once again, another word that we don't really use that much, majesty. If you were to ever meet the king of England, you would call him your majesty. What does that word mean? It means lofty. It means high. It means lifted up. It, it, it's like uh, we sang that song, holy. It's holy. Really, it's greatness. Now, that, that's the problem. We don't use the word Lord, and we don't use the word uh, uh, majesty very much, but, but we do use the word great. Too much. How was your day? Great. How was the dentist? Great. <laughs> we use that word great. We have debates over who is the greatest of all time. The goat. The greatest of all time. And, and there will be an argument. Like let's say there's an argument. This one always comes up. Michael Jordan or LeBron James. Okay. And so you have old people like me that are going to say, man, it's Michael Jordan. And then you have young people who are like, well, what if LeBron James played in the 90s? You have this debate over who's the greatest of all time. 
And, and here's the problem when we use this word great, like there's a debate. But that's not God's greatness. There is no debate. There is no comparison, no argument, no one comes close. He stands in a category all by himself. That's what the word holy means. So, so it's not like there's like a, a you know, single cell organism, and then there's like a fish, and then there's like an animal, and then there's like a human, and there's an angel, and then there's God. That would be preeminent. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about with the holiness of God, the greatness of God, is there's the category of all these things, and God stands over here in his own category. He stands alone. How majestic is your name. He is the creator of all things. That's who our God is. That's glory from the mouth of the king. We also have in verse 2, glory from the mouth of the weak. Look what it says in verse two. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. God uses the weak to shame the strong. That's the glory, part of the glory of what he does. That he chooses what is weak and foolish according to this world, and he uses it to make his name great in all the earth. Glory from the weak. And then in these verses, you have glory from the heavens. Look at the second part of verse one. It says, you have set your glory above the heavens. That could actually be a, a command. Oh Lord, set your glory above the heavens. Put your glory above the heavens. See, when God created the universe, he created it to display his glory. And, and what he did is he put his, his uh, presence in this garden. He placed the man and the woman there, and then he lived with them. And that's where his glory, his presence was on display. But it wasn't supposed to stay like that. It was supposed to radiate through all of creation so that the glory of the Lord would cover the earth like the waters cover the seas. And so David's cry, how majestic is your name in all the earth, what he's saying here, put it in the heavens, so that everybody will know. Accomplish your purposes in all the earth. We want to see your glory. Glory from the heavens. And look in verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. That word heavens, uh, most of the time in the Old Testament, it just means skies. Look at, look at the sky. When I look at the sky, the moon and the stars. So what David has in his head is the night sky. And looking up and seeing the moon and the stars. Have you ever seen the moon and the stars? Like really. It's been pretty clear the last few nights in Round Rock. I've been actually amazed. You can see a whole lot. But there's still light pollution. Have you ever been somewhere where there's no light pollution? And you can see the moon and the stars. I think for us, it's hard to imagine what the ancients saw. The, the view that David must have had when he said, he said, when I consider the heavens, there was no artificial light. He had a better view, but we've got a better understanding of what he was looking at, don't we? See, David didn't know that our sun is just one star in a galaxy with billions of stars just like it, although most of them are bigger. 
David didn't know that. We do. David didn't know that our galaxy, the one that's full of billions of stars, is just one of billions of other galaxies, billions of other galaxies, who also have billions of stars in those galaxies. David didn't know. We know that now. David didn't know how many stars there were. I I was looking in my seven-year-old's devotional book, and I found this, this fact. There are so many stars in our galaxy that if we, just our galaxy, just ours, if we sat down to count them one by one, and we took one second to count every star, it would take us over 3,000 years to count them, just our galaxy. David didn't know how many stars there are, and we're not really sure either. David didn't know that the sun is 93 million miles away and somehow is still hot. (laughs) The sun's core temperature is 27 million degrees. David didn't know how enormous the sun is compared to the earth, an elephant, and a golf ball. He didn't know. We have a better idea now. David didn't know that over 1,100 light years away, you understand a light year is the time it takes light to travel one year, a light year. Over 1,100 light years away, there are galaxies colliding, and there's a picture Back there, I believe we can throw it up there. It took a second to throw up there because the image is so, the file is so massive uh, that the computer is struggling to get it up there. That's galaxies colliding, they say. I mean, they could just put anything up there and we'd have to believe them. But all of the colors and all of the things you see are stars and galaxies and all sorts of things colliding. David didn't know about that, and neither do we, because if you zoom in on like the right side of that, we have a zoomed in picture of it, what is that right in the middle? (laughs) It's a question mark, a question mark. We don't, you know, scientists will say, well, I think it's too, they don't know, they're just guessing. That's a summary of what we actually know. We don't. There's a lot that David didn't know when he, we, when he wrote the psalm, but there's so much that we don't even know. When we look at the night sky, and David says, when I look at your heavens, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, God is the one who has done that. And then he gives us this descriptor. He says, uh, the moon and the stars, it's the work of your fingers, the work of your fingers. Like if I'm going to work hard, I'll say I work with my hands, you know. I'm going to get my hands dirty. Or somebody who's a hard worker, that's somebody who's, whose hands are rough and calloused. And that's a hard worker. And what David's communing, communicating here is that, oh, no, it didn't take his hands. His mighty hands and outstretched arm didn't take that. It was the work of his fingers. It's like he flicked it all into place. Effortless. Easy. And simple. That is the majesty of God. He's not like us. 
He is other. He stands alone in his own category. Isaiah 57, 15, thus says the Lord, high and lifted up, I dwell in a high and holy place. There is no one like our God. So that's the first thing we recognize in Psalm 8 is the majesty of God. Well, here's the second thing that we're gonna see in verse four is the nearness of God. The nearness of God. And you, you put those two things together, they, they don't go together. They don't work. The majesty of God, the nearness of God. But sure enough, there it is. When I look at your heavens, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? See, the takeaway from Psalm 8 isn't just like the remoteness of God. That's not it. The takeaway from this, these verses includes God's attention to detail, to small things. Verse 1 was an exclamation, how majestic is your name? Verse 4 is not an exclamation. It's a question. Like, I don't understand this. I'm going to need an answer here. I, I, I don't quite understand See, man is minuscule in comparison to the enormity of the universe. And so David marvels. He marvels at, at these two statements that are made in verse four. The first thing he marvels at is that God thinks about us. What is man that you are mindful of him? God thinks about us. That means God knows us. One of the things that's true about God is that he's omniscient. That means that he knows everything, but more specifically, it means, every, he, it means that he knows everything that can be known. Past, present, future, actual, and possible. He knows it all. He is intimately aware of every detail of your life. He knows your name. You were uniquely made by him and he knows your name. He has numbered the hairs on your head and that's constantly changing. He knows what you do in secret. He knows what makes you tick, how you're wired. Jesus says that your father knows what you need before you even ask it. So here's what that means. God is omniscient and God is mindful of us. Here's, here's what that means. You can't ever say, well, God doesn't know my struggle. He doesn't know. Like sometimes you might feel alone, like you're the only one dealing with this, these circumstances and you're, you're isolated and nobody sees and nobody understands. But listen, that's just not true. It's not nobody. One time there was a, a lady in the scriptures who was abused and mistreated. She, find her, she found herself isolated and alone in the desert with her baby, just kind of waiting to die. And then the Lord showed up, and he saved her life. And, and this woman, her name was Hagar, she said, you are the God who sees me. You are the God who sees me. She was a nobody slave who nobody wanted, out in the desert, 
all alone, but she wasn't alone. God was there. And he saw her. Maybe that's for somebody today in the room. Maybe you feel like that. I'm all alone. I'm in the desert, man. Nobody, nobody sees what I'm walking through. Nobody, nobody understands. Nobody gets it. I'm all alone. Nope. You need to recognize this morning that there is a God who sees you. And God knows. And he knows you better than you know yourself. He knows what's going on. He knows the circumstances. And listen to me. He knows just what to do. When I think about the heavens, the work of your fingers, how can it be that you see me? God thinks about us. Here's the second thing out of verse four. Not only does he think about us, it says there that God cares about us. He cares. It's not just facts. It's not just that God knows facts about us. But he loves us. He's interested. God didn't create the universe and and place us in it and detach himself from us. No, God, God created the universe for his glory, yes, but particularly for us, for human beings. And he is still intimately involved in our lives. Acts 17, the Apostle Paul, he's speaking to some people, and and here's what he says. God has placed you in the location that you live in, in the time period that you live in, for one reason. That one reason? It's the best chance that you might know him. The best chance that you might know him. So the reason that you live in Round Rock or the surrounding areas or wherever you came from, in 2023, it's because God who knows everything knows that it's the best shot that you have to know him. Romans 8 says, God is for you, he's not against you. Peter says in his letter that what you ought to do is you ought to cast all of your anxiety on him. Why? Peter says, because he cares for you. Absolutely stunning. But it's true. Hard to remember, hard to believe, but it's true. It is the case that the creator of the universe is mindful of you as an individual and cares for you as an individual right now in the midst of what you're going through, whether it's your fault or not. He is intimately aware of what's going on and he cares. How do I know? Well, one, the Bible tells me so. But two, here's what I know. You're sitting in these chairs this morning. And God gave me this Psalm 8 to preach from, and here I am preaching, and I'm telling you that God knows and God cares. I'm telling you these things. God brought you here. God woke you up this morning. You got here into these chairs on time-ish. 
And here you are listening to me tell you, God knows, God sees, God cares, God is able. That's, that's how I know God cares. The majesty of God, the nearness of God, two things that are way over here, but they go together. That's why David is asking the question, like, I don't see how this can be. How can he be so big and so important and still have time and the mental capacity to know and care for me? Now, there's a desk in the, in the White House. It's called the Resolute Desk. It was a gift from, from England, and they, they've got their own duplicate. And there was a president a few decades ago named John F. Kennedy. And there's a famous picture of John F. Kennedy sitting at this desk. Now, John F. Kennedy is the president of the United States. He is the most important man in the most powerful country on the face of the earth. He is handling and dealing with things that if you and I knew about them, we would not be able to sleep at night. What's amazing about this picture is not the desk, it's not the president sitting at the desk. What's amazing about this picture is what's going on at the bottom. You see, that's the president's son, John Jr. You have the most important man in the most powerful country in the world, running the country, running the world. Son is playing at his feet. You know, Tim Keller once said, Who gets to wake the king up in the middle of the night for a glass of water but the king's son? That's the kind of access that we have. The maker of heaven and earth, not the president of the United States, the maker of heaven and earth. Scripture says that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He's not just running the country. He's running the universe. He sees you. He knows you. He cares about you. He invites you in. The greatness of the glory of God will one day cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. It's the greatness of his majesty and the greatness of his nearness together. The invitation of Psalm 8 is not to just think. The invitation of Psalm 8 is to worship. And we can marvel because we know that God made it all. The, the moon and the stars are the handiwork of God. The, the magnitude of creation should cause us to worship our sovereign creator because it's humbling, isn't it? It makes you feel real small when you start talking about light years. I gave a definition of light years and you nodded your head like you knew what I was talking about. You don't know what I'm talking about. I don't know what I'm talking about. We have no idea. It makes you feel so small when compared with the immensity of the skies. 
What is man? How small are our dreams? How small are our successes? We climb to the top of some ladder. How small is that ladder? How small are our problems? They're big to us, but how small are they in comparison to the enormity of the heavens? In comparison, we are dust. We are the dust of dust. And so when we consider the heavens, we are sparked into worship over our creator in any season. Remember the context of Psalm 8? Psalm 3 through 7, David's saying, I'm suffering right now. Bad things are happening to me right now. And Psalm 8 is worship. We marvel because we know that God made it all. And here's the last thing. We rest because we know God's got it all. And that's the beauty when those two things come together, right? God cares. God knows. God sees. That's all true. And also, he has the ability to fix it. He has the ability to do what's right, and he is for you and not against you. What room does that leave for worry or despair or negativity? So we marvel, we, we worship, and we rest. Because our God is majestic 